Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, as a college student, she went on a quest to find out more about her religion, something she felt she had very limited knowledge of. And on that journey, she ended up finding her life's purpose. Welcome rabbi, spiritual leader, author, community organizer, social justice activist, and all around extraordinary human being, Sharon Browse to the podcast. Okay. Hey everyone, my guest today is Sharon Browse. In 2004, at the age of 30, Rabbi Browse founded Ikar, a spiritual community in Los Angeles. In 2013, she was listed as America's most influential rabbi. She has blessed both President Obama and President Biden at the National Inaugural Prayer Services, and her TED Talk, Reclaiming Religion, has been viewed 1.5 million times. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, and Washington Post. Sharon's sermons, which you can find on the eCar podcast, have moved me and so many deeply as she grapples with the same questions we are all struggling with today. Her book, The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts, enters the world Today, I am so honored to have Sharon Browse on the podcast on her book's publishing day. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Alana. It's such a joy to be with you, especially today. So I want you to begin, if you don't mind, by telling me about the choice of the title for your book, Mm. The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. Tell me like why that is the title and how you came up with that title. Yeah, great. So um, many years ago, about just over 10 years ago, a young guy came into my office and he was really broken up. He was this young hipster atheist Jew. And his father, who was his best friend, had just died very suddenly. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry. Um, His father had died very suddenly and very tragically, and he was completely unmoored and really searching for a way to make sense of this moment. It had just happened a couple weeks earlier. Some of his friends said to him, look, you're Jewish. You know, we have this mourner's prayer that we say. You should try saying that. And so he pulls out this ancient mourner's prayer and he started to read it and he got, I mean, not only alienated, but offended by the prayer because he looked at the English translation. The prayer is essentially, I mean, it starts by saying magnified and sanctified be thy holy name. I mean, for a young hipster atheist Jew, nothing could be more alienating. 
praising God in a moment of profound loss. And so he came to sit with me and he said, I don't know what to make of this. Is this really the best that our ancient tradition has to offer? And I literally sat there, a young rabbi, you know, went through every great explanation I knew of why this prayer mattered. And the prayer, by the way, has this kind of mythic presence in our, not just in Jewish life, but also in our, in our broader culture. It was, um, it was in Homeland. It was, you know, it, it, it was at the, that, that final scene when Saul's standing with all the, with all the bodies and he says, and there's this sense that it's kind of permeated the broader culture in some way. I gave him all kinds of explanations, including the one that touched me the most at the time, which was that this saying the same words that our grandparents and great grandparents and ancestors said in their time of loss is actually a way of, of connecting us and affirming us in our time of greatest sorrow with a whole landscape of love and loss that came before us. This guy was totally unmoved by what, by what I shared, by all of the explanations. And he walked out of the office and I felt like I had failed him. I really failed him. And so a, a few months passed and I it was always, I was kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then one day I opened the prayer book and I saw this prayer and I realized that actually what was happening was not about the theology of the prayer, the history of the prayer, the poetry of this prayer, but it was actually about the ritual of the prayer, which is having a mourner, someone with a broken heart, stand up in a community and say, I am broken, and having a community respond saying, Amen. And then the person goes on to say, I don't even know, you know how I can live without my loved one, and the community says, Amen. And then the person, the, the mourner goes on and the community goes on back and forth. And there's this kind of choreography of grief and love between a brokenhearted person and a community of care. And I realized that that is the most profound gift that we can give one another is actually our presence in times of greatest need. And amen, the word amen, which is a very old word, it actually goes all the way back to the Hebrew Bible, actually transcends, it's not just in the Jewish community, but you hear amen in Christian in the Christian tradition, in Catholicism. You hear amin in, in uh, that Muslims say it's very similar to the words ashe and ase from African and Yoruba Yoruba tribes. It's it's a really powerful resonant idea that somebody stands up and in a moment of joy or in a moment of pain says, "This is what I'm experiencing right now. I need you to see me," and a community says, "Amen." I see you, I hold this with you. And Ilana, over the years, like something clicked when I saw that because I realized that over the years as a pastor, as a rabbi, the, the connective tissue between so many of the people that I've been with in their hardest moments was that they just need their pain to be affirmed. We just need to be seen when we're hurting and that doesn't take the pain away. But it does, it does hold our hearts in, in a context of care. And that in its own right can actually be transformative. Tell me, like, rather than taking a collection of your hundreds of sermons that you have right now in, in, the, in the Sharon Browse canon, um, what made you decide to structure this book not just around things you've learned along the way, like you just described, you know, we hear the word amen, as you just said, any church, anywhere you would walk into, it is a familiar 
I mean, I love the familiarity of that word and your interpretation of it for me right now means I see you, right? I stand with you. I see you. I'm with you in this moment. Um, what made you decide to create this really beautiful book that I devoured? Um, it really is. I was like, guys, it's like a spiritual beach read. Like if beach read means you <laughs> <laughs> turn off the rest of the world for a moment and just deep dive into the world that Sharon Browse has given you. It's so incredibly personal. Tell me why you decided mm. to be brave and share so much of your own vulnerability uh, as a pastor, as a rabbi, as a human in this book. Mm. I love that question, Ilana. I love, I love that. Um, you know, I, I, after this experience happened with this young guy and the mourner's Kaddish, um, I ended up giving a big sermon at Kol Nidre one year, the big, you know, really one of the biggest plat platforms of the year. It's, it's Yom Kippur, it's the High Holy Days. It's the one day when people are really paying attention in our tradition and, you know, they come in and they're like, okay, what are you going to do to help me change my life? And I ended up giving a sermon that I called the Amen Effect about 10 years ago. And I shared this, my take, my understanding of the Mourner's Kaddish, but I grounded it in this, in, in another text that I want to share for a moment because it will help answer your question. So this is another ancient, uh, very ancient Jewish text. And by the way, the book is rooted in Jewish wisdom, but it's really not written for a Jewish audience, although I hope that many Jews will read this book. But really, these are core ideas um, that I hope will resonate with people from all different backgrounds and traditions, people of faith and people of no faith. Um, so I, so the, 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 the core idea of the book, which is echoed in that read of Amen that I just shared with you, is rooted in another ancient text, a text that was written 1800 years ago, um, which, is, which is found in the Mishnah. It's a, a, a compendium of Jewish law. It's a fairly obscure Mishnah, to be honest. I never heard anyone else teach this one. It's it's buried deep in a section that's fairly arcane about the architectural layout of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So the ritual that it describes is that the people would go up on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would ascend to Jerusalem and they would go up to the Temple Mount and they would enter through this giant arched portico and they would turn to the right and they would circle around the perimeter of the courtyard en masse, um, hundreds of thousands of people at once. And I always imagine Mecca and the Hajj and that kind of incredibly powerful mass movement of people all in rhythm with one another, except the text says for someone whose heart is broken, that person goes up to Jerusalem, ascends the steps, but turns to the left instead. And every single person who coming is coming from the right and passes someone who's going to the left has to stop and look in their eyes and say to them, Malach, what happened to you? What happened to you? Tell me your story. And then the person who is brokenhearted responds saying, I lost my loved one. M my partner left. My kid is sick. I'm so scared. I'm so alone. I think I'm getting sick, whatever the, whatever is breaking their heart. And the people who are going from right to left have to look in their eyes and say, and give them a blessing and say, may the Holy One bring you comfort. And then they go on their way. And you think about what it means for someone to invest 
their entire life in this trip to Jerusalem. This is like the holiest place on the holiest of days. And they probably saved money there, you know, for years and years to go. And, and when you go there, the last thing you want to do is see this brokenhearted person that's walking toward you. And then you realize that's actually my core responsibility in this moment is to see this broken person. And in fact, that is my spiritual practice. I'm not here for any reason other than to see that person. And that person who's walking to the left, the last thing in the world that person wants to do is go into a big crowded place with tons of people who are having the best day of their lives. Instead, they want to retreat and curl up in their pajamas and stay in bed all day. But the tradition says, no, you go, you show up and you trust that you will be held with love in this place. And you don't pretend you're okay. You don't turn to the right like everybody else. You're not okay. And you and you cry and you weep and you stumble because you will be held with love. And I realize that this text holds the most profound insight of, of the human experience and also offers for us what what is expected of us as participants in community? Who are we actually called to be? So first, once I understood that Mishnah and yeah. I understood this Amen, I realized now that really every sermon is a part of this sermon, that our work in this world is to turn to one another with love and with care and to build the beloved community that we dream of seeing out there to have the courage to try to build that in here. Because so often also as people who dream of building a just society, we spend our energy fighting out there, but we don't spend our energy loving in here. And we have to do both. You can't build out there something you're not manifesting at home. Right. And so I realized that there's actually one super sermon. Right. <laughs> that so much of what, uh, what we've been building in our community in Ikar so much of what we've been building is a, an attempt to create a different kind of language for people to find our way to each other. I closed the manuscript a year ago. Right. I mean, it takes a long time for a book to come out into yeah. the world. Yeah. And and honestly, I, I mean, I was full of trepidation about how the book would be received in a world now that's so different from the world I wrote it in. And I'm different from when I wrote this book. And I, you know, I entered the sound booth in November to record the audio version of the book. And I was so scared that I was gonna find that the book was no longer relevant. Right. Because honestly, I had written the book as a person who most of my life turned to the right and circled around and essentially was a caregiver. I mean, I'm, I'm a literally um, a pastor rabbi. I am pastoring to people in their moments of greatest pain. And then my father died right before Rosh Hashanah. And for the first time in my life, for an immediate family member, I was turning to the left instead of the right. I was learning how to let people hold me, which is very hard, especially for caregivers, as you probably know. Um, and the whole world changed in the last few months. And I feel like all of the positioning of you know, who we are in the society and what our responsibility is, and our it, it, everything turned upside down. And so... I really worried, is the book still going to speak to this moment? And as I started reading it, Ilana, I thought it speaks more to the moment we're in now than it did to the moment I wrote it for. And I'm so relieved by that. And I was a little surprised, but then I realized it's not my wisdom. It's ancient wisdom. This is what I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of a translator of ideas from the past into this moment that we're in. 
that the ideas have withstood the test of time. I mean, these are, this is 2000 year old wisdom. And so of course it still speaks. I mean, they understood what they were talking about when they designed this, this, this container that should be capacious enough to hold the experience of the people who are, in, you know, just in jubilation because they are on in this sacred, holy experience and also the people who are brokenhearted. That's a very old idea. And so of course it speaks to this time because it has spoken to every time because there's always in every moment there is joy and there's pain, there's celebration and there's sorrow. If we're paying attention, it's at present at every dinner party. There's always somebody who's just found new love and somebody who's just had their heart broken. Somebody who just found out that they're pregnant and someone else who just had another loss. So it's always there if we're awake to it. And I think the ancients were tapping into this very powerful, really timeless human experience. And so what the book is doing is essentially drawing deep from the well of the past. And that's why I think the book still speaks to this moment. And especially now, especially now, because so much of what we're experiencing in our time, January 2024, is we do not have the ability to look to each other. We can't see each other at all. And we're living through a loneliness epidemic, an epidemic of, of social alienation and isolation, and also extreme polarization, where we literally can't find, we don't see the human being walking toward us. We're so entrenched in our own pain and in our own narratives. And so what the what I think this wisdom and what really the book is trying to do is say, listen, we are broken, but we can we can walk on a path toward healing. And it starts by seeing the humanity in one another, by seeing the person coming toward us who's in pain. And instead of looking away and instead of shouting at them because their pain's not as bad as my pain, or their pain challenges or threatens my pain. Instead, right. just seeing them in their rawness, in their humanity, and saying, Malach, what happened to you? Tell me what the world looks like from your vantage point. Because it's really different from what it looks like from my vantage point, but my heart is big enough to hold both of those truths. In your TED Talk, which is just the most extraordinary, I don't know, is it 15 minutes? Whatever it is, it's just, it's just <laughs> a life-changing thing, and it's breathtaking. Please correct me if I'm getting the phrase wrong. I thought I wrote it down and I can't find it, but I think you call it psychic numbing. Do you remember, am I misremembering psychic numbing? Is that a phrase? That no, that's right. Okay. That's okay. Right. okay. It, yeah. It comes from, it comes from Professor Paul Slovic from University of Oregon, who wrote a brilliant study um, called the Rokia studies, where he basically went out to students on campus and he showed a picture of one little girl named Rokia who was starving to death. And he says to the students, will you give, I think, $5 to help save Rokia's life? And every single student gave. And then he zooms out the image. So it's Rokia and her brother, and they're both starving. And he says, will you give $5 to save these two starving children? And half the number of people gave. Just doubling the pain reduce the number of people who are willing to engage. And then he zoomed out even more and there are like 300 children right? and they're all starving. And he says, will you give $5 to help these starving children? And again, like almost nobody gave. And so he calls this psychic numbing 
that there's a point where we just, the pain is too great. I can't take it. I, whatever I give will not be enough. So I'm not going to give. And I think this is a very natural human reaction. And, you know, we never in history have had access to as much information as we now have on our, you know, every one of us is attached to these little right. devices. And it tells right. us every time there's a tragedy anywhere around the world, and it's completely overwhelming. And so how do you reclaim your compassion when you're breaking under the strain of so much human sorrow and suffering? And part of what I'm hoping we can draw people to through, through even just even just iterating on this ritual and thinking about what are the spaces that we can turn into the equivalent of the Temple Mount, our synagogues, our churches, our supermarkets, right? Our book groups, like when we see somebody who's in pain, can we look toward them rather than looking away from them? One-on-one, -on -one, small interactions of an affirmation of somebody's humanity in the moment that it matters most, because if we look at the whole world of sorrow, it's just too much and, we, and we'll just break. But if we look at one person who's in sorrow, we can bring a lasagna, right? We can actually show up for each other. And so I feel like there are really two core messages for this immediate moment. One is that we feel so helpless that we're looking at the news every day. It's terrible. I mean, there's no way around it. It's just, a t it's absolutely devastating what's going on in the world right now. From our helplessness, we can, we, we tend to, I mean, we, we just retreat and instead step closer just to someone, step closer to someone who you can help in this moment or who can help hold you in this moment. And number two, step closer with, a, with curiosity. I, I just wanna go back to this ritual that when we see somebody who's breaking, we don't go over and fix them. We ask them a question, tell me about you. Tell me about your father. Tell me about your, your pain. Tell me about your loved one. And I think what it does is it's an introduction. It's an, it's an, um, it's an invitation into our, uh, our, our humanity. And that kind of curiosity is almost completely absent in our current discourse. Everybody's screaming. Everybody's right. The other person's always wrong. But what if we try to, try to bring a mindset of curiosity and wonder into our interactions with each other. Can we actually say to someone, I see that you're getting really activated around something. I don't understand it because from my vantage point, it looks really different. Can we have a cup of coffee? Will you? Can we talk about it? Now, I just wanna say curiosity and open-hearted wonder is not, is not in place of structural change. It's not in place of policies that are just that will help people who are most vulnerable. But it has to happen in addition to those changes. And I feel sometimes we think, oh, the, you know, th these are things that legislators in Congress need to deal with. And therefore, we're kind of off the hook because there's nothing for me to do until Congress changes the law or until the Supreme Court issues a ruling. But there is something for us to do in the meantime. And it has to do with finding our way into one another's humanity. And Alana, when we do that, we are actually reclaiming our own humanity as well. I want to ask you, this This is probably a longer story and maybe another podcast, but it's a question I never got to ask you. So maybe we can brush on it today and, and resume another time. I want to know what the sort of inciting incident in your life was. 
I know there was a moment where you thought maybe you were going to be a lawyer. You're one of the most brilliant humans that I know. Tell me what made you decide to go to rabbinical school? What happened in your mm. life that made you want to be a rabbi? Oh, I, yeah, I grew up um, a secular Jew, um, though strongly identified with my Jewish, um, my Jewish roots, but very disconnected from Jewish religious practice. And I ended up through a series of humiliating experiences when I would walk into Jewish environments. Um, I, once I went to college, I just felt like I was the person who knew nothing. And I was embarrassed again and again and again. I always, you know, sat down when everyone was standing up. I spoke when you're supposed to be silent. I mean, I just did everything wrong. And I felt so embarrassed. This is my tradition. This is my, my great, great, great grandparents were practicing this. And I don't even know enough to know what they rejected. And so I started going on this journey to discover my roots and just find a place where I could start to ask questions. And because I was in New York City at the time in college, there were lots of options. <laughs> and I went, I went with the, you know, the cute boy across the hall who turned out to be my husband years later. Um, <laughs> we went to, we got a list of synagogues in New York City. We went to every single synagogue um, that we, one by one by one. And I walked out of all of them crying because nobody said hello when we walked in. Nobody told me what page we were on. Nobody, you know, well made us feel like we were welcome in this place. I just felt like I'm an intruder on my own family. I don't fit in even in my own home. And then finally, but then we would go out to dinner and have a glass of wine and talk about it and fall in love. And so eventually, it's, this is part of our falling in love montage. So <laughs> at some point, I ended up at a synagogue on the Upper West Side called B'nai Jeshurun. That you um, that you know of, and I walked in, and the rabbis were talking. Uh, this was in the early '90s about HIV/AIDS and how it was a moral imperative that we, as Jews and as human beings, spoke honestly and with moral clarity about what was happening and about the way that hatred and cruelty were contributing to the perpetuation of a disease that would become a global um, pandemic. And that if we didn't do something immediately, that tens of millions of people around the world were going to die. And I, I turned to David sitting next to me and I said, oh my God, that's what it means to be a Jew. We have responsibilities to other human beings. We have to be truthful. We have to be just. We have to be brave. That's what it means. And then they started to sing and everyone rose to their feet and just started dancing. And I thought, oh my God, it's not just honest and brave and courageous. It's beautiful and joyous. And that's what I want in my life. So the next semester I went to Israel, I went to go study in Jerusalem because I thought I'm completely functionally illiterate as a Jew. I don't know, I don't know anything and I wanna learn. And I kind of immersed myself in this environment in Jerusalem where I could just drink in everything. And try to understand how this fit into my life. I was still fully intending to become a civil rights attorney at this point. And then I had one crazy Shabbat, one, one weekend in the old city in Jerusalem. And I actually had this realization that the great agents of social change, the people who I admired most and who actually had inspired me to want to become a civil rights attorney and had made me into an activist, a justice you know, activist, were people who had faith. Most of them, if not all of them, were people who had a core story. And I realized 
that some of their stories were also my story. In other words, Dr. King was so motivated by and mobilized by the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And that story is also my story. And I, I had this epiphany and I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna become a rabbi. And it, it had, I mean, it was like a bolt of lightning moment. And I, I mean, literally went and called my, my parents after this moment and I said, I'm going to be a rabbi. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're going to law school. And so, and, Put and my Sharon mom, on the phone, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> Who took my job? So exactly. they, and then they, you know, and literally my mom said, I thought you said you were going to do something good for the world. So, and, and by the way, immediately afterwards, they were totally on board, like the most supportive sitting in the front row, you know wonderful but at the time they were like what are you what do you mean and i realized that part of what i needed to do was translate these ancient stories which survived in this world for a reason into a discourse of social transformation for our time and that that path was a what my path was a jewish path but the people who are most closely my partners in this work actually weren't jews they were people from other faith traditions who similarly found the impetus for social change, the impetus for our work in building a just and loving world from their own traditions, from their own sacred narratives. And for me, that was a really transformative part of the journey. And, and so I've always, from the beginning been looking for, you know, who are the partners? Who are the allies? Where is the Where are the people who are driven by ancient core narratives to build a world transformed, a world of love and a world of justice. And I'm so inspired by that. And by the way, along the way, lots of partners who don't have ancient stories and narratives, but also share the dream of a world in which people take care of each other and are gentle with one another and tender and loving. And that I believe is the world that we have to continue to lift our gaze to see because it's so hard in this moment when people are so cruel to each other and especially when religious traditions are at the heart of so much of that cruelty to really offer a radically different view and to say this is also a legitimate authentic expression of this very ancient story and this story really is about love and dignity and justice this story is about recognizing that every single person is created in god's own image and therefore deserves to live in dignity. And there's a there's a little um, story that I share in chapter three of the book. Um, this is a text that I first heard from one of my friends, a great teacher, Rabbi Shai Held, um, some, I don't know, 20 years ago, he shared this story from our tradition that every person, this this is like 1600 years old, every person, wherever we go, is surrounded by a procession of angels singing and blowing the shofar and saying, make way for an image of the Holy One is approaching. And it's just like, I just beg us to imagine what would it mean to go to, you know, to to the market, to walk down the street and imagine that every single person who's warming themselves on the, you know, on the steam from the, you know, from the subway is created in the image of God is surrounded by a procession of angels blowing horns saying, hey, wake up people, this is an image of the Holy One. And what would it mean if we engaged each other in that way? And when somebody's hurting, and the last thing I wanna do is be close to your pain because it reminds me that I am also vulnerable and could also experience pain. Instead, to hear the shofar, 
to hear the horn and to hear the angels and to say, my God, this is an image of the Holy One too. So how can I engage this person with love because she deserves it just like I do? You know, I um, I think so much about the Mishnah, the, the ritual you described and, and sort of in all of our minds, we can picture Mecca, right? This idea of people all gathering on this ancient mountaintop and some people are walking clockwise and some people are walking counterclockwise and stopping and seeing each other's pain. And I've been thinking as I read your book right now, I feel like all of us would be walking in the same direction. You're right. There's so many of us are walking to the left right now. I mean, so many of us are broken at once. And I closed chapter one by talking about a family that was very much walking to the left in very deep grief. And even as they were in the midst of their grief, there was another terrible loss in our community. And I called to tell them about it. And their response was, please tell the parents that when they're ready to talk, they can call us and we will walk with them. And so I feel that as so many of us are navigating this sorrow and anguish right now, our, we actually can still take care of each other, even though we're not really okay ourselves. And that's what you're doing for me right now. And I hope I can do that for you and for Dominic forever. I'm in. So I am so grateful um, for you and for your voice and just love you deeply. And thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. You're welcome. I wish you tremendous success with this book. I do have to ask you one question. I close out every episode asking my guests to share a little known fact about themselves. <sighs> Um, I was arrested when I was first year of college because, because David and a couple of friends and I scaled a building because we heard it was the most beautiful way to see the sunset. And we didn't realize that we were on private property. And um, yeah, and it was quite embarrassing. And I mean, helicopters swooped in and uh, like 15 police cars. And I'm like, I swear we were not here for any nefarious ends. We just wanted to see a really good view. Um, so that is a little known fact about me. <laughs> that is a good one. Listeners at home don't don't scale the wall to watch the sunset just find some place in nature to do it much love to you i will see you soon and thank you for being on the podcast today thank you so much ilana thank you I have some news. Little Known Facts is now available to watch on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of interviews that you can see my fabulous guests. And guess what it's called? Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Anyway, head on over to YouTube and watch the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you want to donate to the podcast, zero pressure, but if you want to, no donation is too big or too small. I am so grateful for you for listening, but if you want to donate, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com 
forward slash donations. Lastly, Little Known Facts is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, USA. My editor is Nicholas Clark. None of this happens without Nicholas. And the Little Known Facts theme song was composed and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you for listening and have an amazing day. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big